Okay. I swear to you, this title is not clickbait. Okay? This, I repeat, this title is not clickbait. I am going to point out something in Chapter 3 of The Mandalorian that no one is talking about. And something you may have missed. So, stick around for this episode, because it's, it's going to be a hoot. Not only are we talking about Chapter 3 of The Mandalorian, but we are also doing a review on Return of the Jedi. That's right. It is not it is six weeks in to our Road to the Rise of Skywalker movie marathon, where once a week we watch one episode of the Skywalker saga up until the release of episode nine. And this week is Return of the Jedi. So here we go. You're listening to Han Talks first, episode 29. my show. I'm Han. You're listening to Han Talks First, episode 29. Whoo, 29 weeks of uh, this podcast. Really cool, actually. When I started it, I didn't know how far I was going to go, how long I would be doing this, but now we know. We are almost 30 weeks in, and we've been covering a lot of great content, and the listener feedback has been pretty good, so thank you guys for sticking around and uh, listening to uh, me talk about the wonderful world of Star Wars. So today, like I said, we're talking about The Mandalorian Chapter 3 and Return of the Jedi. But before I jump into it, I want to talk about some things I dropped this yesterday, actually, Monday. We had a special look at The Rise of Skywalker, which was kind of a a, a montage reel of uh, a bunch of the history from these movies. Uh, a bunch of highlights of like behind the scenes and interaction with the fans. And it was a very... <clears throat> It was a very emotional video, not going to lie. It was really nice to watch, and it reminded me of the second trailer we got for this movie. And on top of that, we got a special clip from the movie itself. It was only 30 seconds, but it was a great 30 seconds in my opinion. I know it's getting a lot of hate because everyone is criticizing the fact that they're saying, oh, they fly now? And yes, they've flown before, but these people don't know that. Remember, it's a it's a new generation of people that don't really know the whole history of of uh, their galaxy. But I I loved it. I thought it was great. I thought the cinematography was really beautiful, and the way it it flowed through the action was really cool. And uh, I also liked I liked the humor of it. You know, three PO yelling out, "They fly now!" It's so three PO, and Boyega questions or Finn questions it, and then uh, what's his name? Poe just confirms it. I thought it was, I thought it was funny. I thought it was cool. I thought it fits Star Wars, and um, the meme of John Boyega's face going around the internet—that look you make when they fly now—is pretty funny. But I liked it, and uh, the best part for me about that was the music. It definitely sounded like uh, some of the best uh, Williams, some of the best of Williams. You know, just how he how he scores action. It's it's uh, like I said in the last episode, he knows how to write for the movie and make it seem like it fits perfectly. 
Um, so much so that I didn't even catch the music the first time I, list- I watched it. So go back, check it out, listen to the music. It's, it's very interesting, and it, I think it sets up what we can expect to hear in this last movie. So, uh, thinking about that, actually, the John Williams music. This isn't going to be a music episode, but um, how funny would it be to, like... I was thinking about this earlier today. I was like, what if Star Wars had, like, a, a different theme from another movie? Like, for example, Terminator. What if that was the theme song for instead of the fanfare? And then vice versa, like, Terminator had the Star Wars music. <laughs> it would completely mix up the tone and it would feel, it'd feel odd, wouldn't it? Or even better, what if Terminator had the Indiana Jones theme song? I'll be back. Anyway, just a funny thought. What are some of your funny alternative movie scores for a different movie? Let me know. Okay, so let's just let's just get right into it. I'm going to talk about Chapter Three, The Mandalorian. So uh, I don't. I'm not. I, I think everyone should understand that I'm getting into the details, so if you don't want to know anything, uh, go away. Okay, so chapter three, it was, first of all, the first episode to be directed by a female. Not only in television, but in all of uh, Star Wars live action. Uh, Live action. There has been female directors in the animations. So uh, she's the first but not the first of the grand uh, canon of Star Wars. But still, it's, it's, a, it's a big deal. You know, we, uh, Kathleen Kennedy's been saying for a while she's been talking to a bunch of live-action directors. However, she's not the one who brought Deborah Chow in. John Favreau is the one who brought Deborah Chow in. And Deborah Chow has... Uh, do you guys remember a couple weeks ago I was saying, you know, I'm really nervous about her coming into not for The Mandalorian, but for the Obi-Wan series because she's doing that whole entire series herself as director. And I was saying I'm really nervous because her whole entire resume has been television. And one, I hadn't heard of any of the shows she's done. And two, I don't like how television is uh, shot. We all know that. You hate me talking about it. so it's <laughs> But I-, I was nervous. I was very nervous about it. But um, you know what? She actually proved to be a worthy candidate after viewing the chapter three. Um, so let's just jump right into the meat of it then. Chapter three, we we finally kind of get into the groove of figuring out where this show is going to go. So it's called The Mandalorian, but I think they should change the name to Baby Yoda because he seems to be the talk of the town, not The Mandalorian. But it is confirmed that Baby Yoda will remain in the series, or at least this season. He's a very precious asset, uh, if, if you guys can tell. Um, we don't know why quite yet, but we do know that we're going to get that answered by this episode, or this chapter alone, which makes me happy because that's that was the hook in the first in the pilot, and um, now it kind of just affirms, hey, we're going to get into it. He's not just going to turn in the bounty and go about his business. But the way it was done was really well put together. For example, when he arrives back on to uh, that that base where all the bounty hunters are, and he delivers it, and then the setup of him being like, what's going to happen to it, and then uh, Warner Horsog's character is just like, it's not common for a bounty hunter to ask. And then the, there's like the tension already, and uh, then he goes out and he asks 
uh, grief. You know, I was calling him Griff last week, and nobody corrected me. <laughs> I, I don't know why, but I, I kept calling him Griff. I don't know why. I think it's grief, isn't it? They haven't really said it, but I think it's grief. So he talks to grief. He's like, what are they going to do with it? And then he's like, you know, no one asks that question around here. You got to just do your job and get the fuck out. So it showed he cared, right? And But he doesn't want to care. He, re- I mean, he wants to care, but at the same time, he knows, like, if he cares, it's going to take him off of his, like, uh, his, his path, whatever he's trying to accomplish himself, which we still don't know. Him and his fellow Mandalorians are obviously there for a reason. Uh, we don't know why yet, but apparently this bounty, this baby Yoda, is, is going to get in the way of that. So he was scared to be attached to it to avoid completing his other mission with his fellow comrades. And in order to get over that, he asks Grief for another bounty right away. And he's like, just go enjoy yourself. Have a vacation. He's like, nope, I got to get this baby Yoda out of my mind. And I got to move on. And the best way to do that is just get back to work. And he says, no, you know. Uh, well, he, he gives him the bounty eventually. Um, but right there, there's tension between him and Grief. So not only uh, with the Empire or what's left of the Empire, but now he has tension with the Bounty Guild. And... He gets in his ship, and this is one of the best parts of the movie when he he reaches for the uh, uh, the shift, and that ball that Baby Yoda was playing with was gone. And then he realizes, <laughs> I gotta go back. There's nothing I could do. So he shuts off the 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 ship, and then he goes back into the base and um, he rescues Baby Yoda. Uh, just the whole all the setups and the the, the build to that moment was, was really great, and it's really cool to see. Uh, someone that we never see his face be attached to somebody. And it really shows strong character there. And I just love that he has a soft spot. And he's not just this, you know, bad uh, mofo. You know, he, he's, he's got a human heart to him. Even though we don't see him as a human, he has human qualities. And I, I love that about the Mandalorian. I just want to say real quick, when uh, Baby Yoda was... Uh, <laughs> When he was brought into the that Empire hangar, and he was like the security droid came out, the one from Return of the Jedi, and Baby Yoda looks up at it. This is the funniest look he gave it. He's like, "What the hell is that?" <laughs> Baby Yoda's so cute. So, and then after that, after he captures Baby Yoda, then all the bounties start to hunt for. Uh, all the bounties fobs go off, and they realize, "Oh, we all got the same bounty for this one guy now." And they all start going after him. That was my favorite shot in the movie. When one of they're sitting at the bar, all the bounty hunters, and then the fob goes off, and then it shows all the other fobs going off, and then it shows Grief's fob going off. And that was my favorite shot of the movie. And it again, just building up to this moment. And then we get to the moment where they're all surrounding him, and he just goes John Wick on their asses and starts blowing them away and disintegrating them. And then the, the moment when you think it's over and the Mandalorian's done, uh Flying over the archways come the other Mandalorians, and they're like, this is the way. And then he's like, this is the way. And then he, he just gets on out of there and flies away. And then you see him <laughs> flying next to a, one of the Mandalorian with a jetpack, and he's just like, i got to get me one of those. And the other guy, yeah, this is the way. And um, it was just so cool. It was really cool. I was also nervous going into the show. If you guys remember, I was like, they got to have jetpacks. Uh, I really want to see jetpacks on the show. And they got them. They got them, but I don't know why. The Mandalorian himself doesn't have one. So maybe he'll get to that point. We did see him upgrade armor. You know, Now he's just got to level up and get a jetpack and level up again, and he'll just become a, uh, a giant 
uh, slug. Um, so yeah, the I thought the action was good. You know, I I thought the uh, the the acting was good. The 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 story and the the way it was directed was very well done. And Deborah Chow is also coming back for the uh, the second to last episode, episode seven. Um, and so I can only imagine what she has in store for us then. But she did a good job. And uh, one thing she mentioned during the press conference was that all the directors are working together. It's not a it's not like regular television where a director comes in and then they fuck off. And then another one comes in and they just kind of jump into the meat of it and they don't really get all the context that they need. And then they go out and another one comes in. So she was saying with this one, all the directors are working together. So they all have a good sense of where it's going, what they're working on. And they all, they, they're learning from all uh, seven of the directors. And they all are executing the same vision which I think is what makes this show different than other televised series because it's essentially one vision with a different taste on it. And it's hard to come by. But it's working so far, and I, I can't wait to see next, or this Friday's episode, uh, we have another female director coming in, Bryce Dallas Howard. And um, she is the daughter of Ron Howard, who made Solo. Uh, <laughs> don't worry, don't worry. It's not going to be like Solo, okay? She's a different person, okay? And she's made, she's directed before. She did a, a Black Mirror episode, and uh, it was good. It was really good. And she's also a good actor, so I can imagine maybe she'll have herself a little cameo in here. But, um, yeah, that was, I mean, Chapter 3, uh, there's not really much I can say about it. It was very well made. It's just worthy of watching and watching a second time in a row. It was very, it was very well done. Where it's going from here? Well, we know the Mandalorians have to find a new base, okay, and maybe once they find a new base, which will be in Chapter Four, they can they'll discuss why they're looking for a new base and why they have to go into hiding and what their mission is. Obviously, they are building armor and uh, trying to. I guess I feel like they are exiled from Mandalore. And until they are welcome back, they have to prove themselves. I don't know. I don't know. Again, that's what's so beautiful about this show. I have no freaking idea what's going on. And I can't wait to see what's next. It's just a surprise after a surprise, you know? And um, we'll see what happens. They also announced that Baby Yoda toys are going on sale. So uh, you can bet that that is going to be a hit this Black Friday. I'm sure they're going to sell out really quickly. Because I see Baby Yoda freaking everywhere. There's so many memes. I cannot open my phone without seeing at least ten Baby Yoda memes. So, it's a very popular character. Now, the thing that I put in the title, the thing you missed about The Mandalorian, the thing that nobody is talking about, okay? Go back and watch the episode. And then when you see The Mandalorian um, upgrading his armor again, and melting the metal, and then he gets into, uh, you know, a brawl with one of his fellow Mandalorian. They both pull out knives or whatever, and then they freeze because their leader stands up and says, like, enough of this. And then they're just frozen there. And then the lady's talking. She's just like, you know, this is not the way. Like, we've got to work together, blah, blah, blah. And, um, and then if you look closely, you can see that the blades on their daggers are in a shimmer, and they're shaking. And 
I know it's very, very subtle, but I noticed it and I thought, whoa, what is going on here? Like, why, why are they even, why did they freeze like that? Just because this lady stood up? Well, the way the knives are shaking is the same way that Rey was shaking in The Force Awakens when she was force frozen by Kylo. So it leads me to believe that the leader of this Mandalorian clan is force sensitive. That's right. I don't know why nobody is talking about this. It's right there on screen. Go back and watch it. it. She's using the force to stop them from fighting each other. And then she gives a little speech, and then they all move on. And then that was it. So what could this mean? Is this uh, Mandalorian a an ex-Jedi that's in hiding, pretending to be a Mandalorian? Or is she just a Mandalorian that is Force-sensitive? And she's just like the, the original leader who was uh, the first Mandalorian Jedi. Does she possess the Black Saber? Is this why they're outcast from Mandalore? Because... They don't want any force sensitives there because they don't like the Jedi. I don't know. There's so many opportunities here, but I, and this honestly could all be wrong and I'm just a big idiot and you can all make fun of me for it, but go back and watch the, the chapter three. It's there and nobody's talking about it. We're all too distracted by baby Yoda's cuteness, which is fair, but I think, I think, I think, sorry, my phone went off. I think this is a very important detail in chapter three that is going to be kind of under the radar in these next chapters and revealed in the final chapter eight of this season. So I don't know, guys, it's kind of crazy to me. It's blowing my mind and it blows my mind even more that no one else caught this and I don't see it anywhere. I look it up and I can't even find it. So go ask your friends, go tell them that you heard it here first. Okay. Anyway, that's it for chapter three of the Mandalorian. Great episode. Looking forward to number four this week, and we will find out what happens. Okay? So, let's move on to my review of Revenge of the Jedi. I mean, Return of the Jedi. The reason I said that is because the original name for Return of the Jedi was Revenge of the Jedi. Because when George Lucas pitched it to... um, who was the uh, the producer, Gary Kurtz, I think. When he pitched it to him, he was just like, you know, I, I, I don't like, I, don't, I think we can use a different name. I think we can find a better name. George was like, okay, Revenge of the Jedi. And he was like, yep, that's the one. And then they went through and they shot the whole movie. And um, then by the end of that movie, uh, right, by, right before it came out, George was like, no, I got to change it back to Return of the Jedi because Jedi are not vengeful. And um, changed it back, and there are a few posters remaining that have the original title, Revenge of the Jedi, on it. So, kind of a cool story. Anyway, let's talk about the damn movie, okay? So, I'm just going to kind of speak chronologically here, uh, just from start to finish, because that's how I took my notes. Um, But in terms of speaking in tone poetry, there are many echoes to A New Hope in Return of the Jedi, even as early as the opening shot and uh, with the, uh, the ship flying over the top of the screen and showing its, its, its large, its largeness, <laughs> bad English. Um, and then it follows with the scene of C-3PO and R2-D2 walking in the desert, just like a new hope. Um, so it's kind of like, um, 
again echoing that this is this is the end of this of this story, this trilogy, this uh, this sequence of events. Uh, so I think it's kind of nice to have those parallels there, and we really know George Lucas loves to do that in all of his movies. But just something I noticed right away, and then. Uh, one of the most early, the early quotes that I, I love from this movie is by Darth Vader, and it's when he's um, when he arrives onto the Death Star, and he's just like, "You need to like, you need to hurry up production on the Death Star because the Empire won't be happy." And he's just like, um, "Well, we're doing as much as we can because we don't have enough men. Like, you got to give me more time and money if you want that to happen." And he's just like, um, "Well, you could tell it to the Emperor yourself." And he's like, "The Emperor's coming here," and he's just like, "Yes." So you know, do your job right. And the guy's just like, we'll double our efforts. And he's like, be sure of that. The emperor is not as forgiving as I am. And then his face is just like, <laughs> I don't know. Cause I love that line because Darth Vader is not, you know, if someone fucks up with him, he just automatically chokes him to death and stuff. And, um, that line, the emperor is not as forgiving as I am. is just very, very powerful. And it shows like, Hey, there's a bigger, badder guy out there above this dude. And, he he doesn't take literally any shit from anybody. So and that also sets up um, Darth Vader's position in the Empire and being like s- submitted to the dark side of the Force because he has a master and he cannot go away from that. He says himself at the end of the movie like it is too late for me. You know he's already my master. Blah blah blah. So just a nice little setup. And um, of course we got to talk about Jabba's palace. Uh, the construction of the opening sequence of Jabba's palace is very clever actually you know with the subtle clues that r2 is already in on the plan with luke to break into jabba's palace Uh, i just love that whole setup you know they arrive first and then they play the message and then leia disguised comes in brings wookie the wookie in with uh as like a, a bounty to be sold or whatever and and then luke comes and and then they all get he gets captured on purpose and then he gets thrown to the Sarlacc pit. It's just like, it's so cleverly done. It's just a nice little heist escape movie at the beginning. And it kind of stands alone on a short almost. Um, it's a very long, very long opening sequence. It's, I think it was like 30 minutes of the movie, which is about a fourth of it, which <laughs> takes up a lot of time. But it's a very nice opening scene. It's one of the, the better parts of this movie. I, I did notice that Luke identifies himself as a Jedi Knight in the first recording. So we know now with the modern-day novels that Luke knows of the Jedi from the past. But why does he refer to himself as a Jedi Knight? So did he learn of their titles and get enough training from his forced ghost teacher to reach that level of skill? Or does he just call himself that because it's common common terminology? Um, But then again, it's countered because everyone in the universe knows what a Jedi is. Uh, But no one calls them... Jedi Knight. So it's interesting to me that he gave himself that title. In the first movie, he was just a learner, not even a Padawan or, or whatever. But um, once we get into uh, The Empire Strikes Back, he wants to become a Jedi, and then he refers to himself as a Jedi Knight. So it's just interesting to me that he thinks of himself as a Jedi Knight, and then at the end of this movie is essentially a master. It's interesting. I don't know. Something to think about. Um, but yeah, when they're in Jabba, again, with Chaba's palace, uh, you know, some, as a kid, some of that was, like, really terrifying to me. The scene that really terrified me as a child, like, legitimately, was the scene with the gonk droid being flipped upside down in the dungeon, and they burn his feet. 
there was something about that that just truly terrified me as a kid. I didn't know the difference between like a, a gonk droid and like a person in a box at that time. So I couldn't I couldn't recognize it. Uh, you know that was that was a robot. So I thought it was a kid in in like in some kind of torture box and then he was flipped upside down and they burned his feet and that like freaked me out when I was little. It sounds bad, doesn't it? it? Sounds creepy, but that's what I thought and it's like a dark room or whatever and um yeah, and I, I was just always so scared of that and I was I was like I would be afraid of like boxes or being upside down. I don't know, but that just shows how how powerful this movie is for like little kids and stuff. <clears throat> Fun fact about this movie. George Lucas is actually the co-rector, co-director on this film, and it's uncredited as that. Um, so George Lucas was equally a director on this as much as Richard Marquardt. Richard Marquardt was the official director, but he was not knowledgeable in special effects, and he never worked with them as, as heavily as in this movie. You know, this was it was the most at that that time period, and um, he really had no idea what the hell he was doing. So. Uh, George Lucas had to step in and be there and uh, not only tell him how to work the special effects and think special effects in post while you're shooting in real time, um, but George didn't realize that this was happened when he brought in Richard Marquardt on, on directing. He didn't know that he would have to be involved so much. You know, The reason he brought in other directors was he, so he could focus on the special effects and dedicate his whole time to that. But he ended up being on set every single day for this picture. So George Lucas is a really, really big part of Return of the Jedi, more so than The Empire Strikes Back. Um, I, I know that sounds like a little off. Uh, he was a big part of Empire. Um, but as far as like hands-on every day, more so in Return of the Jedi. Okay? He was also the director of all the second unit on Return of the Jedi. Um, That's like just close-ups or off-shots of like feet and stuff like that. It's really, there's no main star in those shots. So not only did he work with the main stars, he also worked on the second unit, which it just, he went above and beyond with this one. It's, it's, uh, it was a lot of work. So should we talk about that new song in Jabba's Palace? Oh my god. <laughs> it's bad any time you watch. I don't I don't care like any under any uh situation. It's just bad. I it, it doesn't work at all. I I don't know why that's in there. I, I'm very curious as to like who wrote that. Cuz we know John Williams did the uh the Cantina song, and he also did the Cantina song in Force Awakens, but did he have anything to do with this one? Because it was just weird, and uh, it really didn't need to be in there. I don't even remember what was the original placeholder for that scene, which is kind of sad. I <clears throat> I wish I did, but it's, uh, let's move on. Let's not talk about that song anymore. Okay, so let's talk about when Leia comes into the movie, okay? She brings in Chewbacca, and I love that voice she has disguised. The, uh, I don't know how to do it, but it was it's one of my favorite voices in Return of the Jedi. And um, what really like caught me by surprise in this one was 
she comes in and then both that kind of gives that nod of approval like okay you're your bounty hunter or whatever. But wouldn't Boba Fett have caught on to what was going on? I mean, Boba Fett was around when Chewbacca, Han Solo, the two droids, and Luke Skywalker were all in the same room. So even though Leia was disguised, wouldn't he kind of wonder, like, hmm, there's four of these people in the same room that I just took their friend from. Shouldn't I be thinking about what they're about to do here? Nah, it's okay. I got a lot of money and I'm I'm drunk on on spice. Okay. But that really was interesting to me. And um where was it? On Bespin, that's where they were all together last time. Anyway, I do love his nod of approval to Leia when she clears the bounty as a sign of respect between the guild and what that is bounty hunting. So I I really love that that little uh, exchange between the two there. And you know, once once Han is fro- uh, um, un- unfrozen, there you can. There's so much history between Jabba and Han when they speak to each other, and when they talk, it's just such a shame to me that the solo movie couldn't have explored that story. We all know. I mean, especially the fact that we all know that Han Solo. We all know him as a smuggler, right? But we've never actually seen him smuggle. Anything. Weird, huh? I just think it was a good opportunity wasted. He has history with Jabba, and a lot of that is credit to Harrison Ford's acting, because he's he's going off a giant slug, and I can really feel that he's had this history with Jabba the Hutt, and there's just there's a lot of story that is there that could have been brought from that solo movie. You know, rather than it being an origin story, which is useless, uh, I think I would have enjoyed it better if it was like a Job of the Hut movie and like a gangster movie and a smuggling movie. But anyway, let's move on to Luke's entrance, okay? Now, clearly, now we see that he is a Jedi Knight indeed because he comes in and he brings a storm. He's doing chokes, he's doing mind tricks. He's doing flips, he's doing uh, manipulations, he's like being sneaky and crafty. And also in the deleted scene from this movie, we see it shows him constructing a new lightsaber. Now I do, I do like that it wasn't in the movie itself, because it makes that surprise of that green saber coming up even more exciting. So I get why it wasn't put in there, but if you think about it as a contextual with the movie, then it makes sense that he is a Jedi Knight, so... As I was watching, I realized, okay, you know, he he is a Jedi Knight. And when he's talking to Yoda later, he's addressing the fact that he is not a master, which is uh, basically just an overall confirmation that you are a Jedi. So it makes sense to me now. You know, then they all escape, or they don't escape yet, but they go from Jabba's palace and they're about to be executed and thrown down into the Sarlacc pit. Um, then we see the green lightsaber, beautiful green lightsaber, and... There's a bunch of different stories as to why there's a green saber. Some of them are that um, it, the blue lightsaber over the blue sky background didn't work, so they had to change the color. And then there's others that it was already in the story before. I don't know. But the fact that it's there is really cool, and it's a lot of people's favorite. And <laughs> a lot of people wish that Luke still had it in The Last Jedi because it's a really cool saber. 
Um, and then we got Boba Fett's accidental death. You know, unfortunate. I know all the believers out there, you know, but he's dead. Okay. And then we got the Leia bikini. Ooh, girl. I know she hated it, but everybody else loves it. Okay. And you look beautiful, Leia. Um, and then we have Lando being pulled into the, the pit when he was screaming. You know that he, when he, the reason I'm talking about this is because, uh, this, he's, the quote he says when he's being, uh, pulled in with, by the giant tentacle into the Sarlacc pit, he's screaming a little higher, a little higher so that Han can like reach his staff to get him. But what he's actually saying is stop, stop. And that's why he looks so, like, scared. It, during the shoots, uh, something happened, and his leg was actually being pulled, and he hurt his his hip or something. And he was uh, he was telling the crew to like stop. And if you go back and watch that scene, you can actually see his lips saying "stop," but it's dubbed over and saying "a little higher, a little higher." And it's so funny to me that. <laughs> That's what they they kept it in there. I don't know. It's, and the, but that's why it looks so real and terrifying because he's actually in pain and he's actually hurt. But uh, yeah. So then they escape and they go out and they have a grand old day, right? And then we get the introduction of the emperor. Bum 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 bum. The emperor scenes were always my favorite in this movie. There's just something about the emperor that is just um, very outstanding. Uh, the performance, probably most most of all, uh, um, Ian McDermott is so great in this movie. He really, really changed the tone of of what a, a villain could be. Uh, you know, he's really smooth and calm. At the same time, he's very influenced and very strong and pow- powerful. I don't know, but. I'm just so happy he's coming back for the Rise of Skywalker. It's it's gonna blow my mind. I'm I I'm gonna I'm gonna lose it. I'm going to lose my shit. Okay, so you know you all know what happens in this movie, okay? I don't need to tell you anymore, right? I mean, let's just let's talk about like I did with Empire. What what is this movie about, right? What is the point? What is the point of a movie if there's no if there's no message or themes or uh, life lessons in it? And we got that a lot in Empire Strikes Back. But what could this movie have offered that both A New Hope and The Empire Strikes Back could not? How do you catch lightning in a bottle for the third time? It's impossible, right? Yet somehow, this movie made the most out of all three of the original trilogies. And it's because this movie is about maturity. And it's about becoming men, becoming women, becoming the person you are supposed to be. This, the original movie came out in 1977. This one came out in 1983. That's a, that's a huge gap from when people first saw the first movie. So it makes sense for those that watched earlier to have a, a younger state of mind. And then when they grow through the second one, they it's just this whole movie matures with the audience. And I think that's what drives its success. So yeah, I think this movie is about 
um, similar to Empire Strikes Back. Uh, Empire Strikes Back was like figuring out how to be honorable as a person. And then Return of the Jedi is just about actually seeing that that honor and that justice from one point of view, not from two different sides. So a couple examples. Okay. Yoda says that Luke will become a Jedi when he conf- <clears throat> sorry, when he confronts Vader. Obi-Wan also says to Luke, "You will you you're our last hope." You know, you must confront Vader. And then you know, that's when Luke says, "Well, Yoda said there's another and he's like, "Well, it's your sister." You know, and because he learned he has a sister, then he realizes, well, shit, I can't let Leia do that. I can't see her go through that. I have to do this. So that's already a big, a big moving point. So I think in this movie, now this is a very, very opinionated thought, okay? But after viewing this movie again in, in deep retrospect, I... Luke is very against Yoda and Obi-Wan's teachings that he has to confront his father. He keeps saying, I will not kill him. I cannot destroy him. He even tells it to Vader, I will not fight you. I will not destroy my own father. Okay? And he keeps denying Yoda and Obi-Wan that he has to confront him. But here's the thing. Yoda and Obi-Wan never, ever said that Luke has to destroy Vader or Luke has to kill Vader. Okay? Kill. That word was never spoken by the two masters. They said you need to confront him. Luke interpreted that as kill or destroy. So I believe Yoda and Obi-Wan, they kept saying, until you confront him, you will be a Jedi. Until you face him, You'll be a Jedi. I think this was their last test. You know, he will become a Jedi when he faces his greatest fear and the biggest evil. And not by destroying him, but converting him back. How beautiful is that? You know, it's the ultimate test. It's the test of faith. It's the test of uh, yourself. Um, It's the test of maturity. And... It's becoming the person he's supposed to be, which is a Jedi Master. So I don't know why it took me so long to catch on to this. It's a it's a really fun movie, and I think that's what kind of makes it an escapism. But when you really look at the detail and the fine parts of this movie, it's, it's very, very powerful. So that's that's my thinking. You know, Yoda also says to him, he says that he does not require any more training because he has everything he needs acquired. So I take this as whatever you want it to be. As whatever you want to be, you can be. You don't have to be the best at it. But if you want to be a Jedi, you can be a Jedi. What I'm saying is, Luke keeps saying, "Will I? am I a Jedi? So I am a Jedi. And Yoda's just like, oh. and he's just like, and he's like, I need to finish my training so I can be a Jedi. And he's like, you don't need any more training. You have everything you need. 
And then he's like, so I am a Jedi. And he's like, well, you must con- confront your dad. I, I take this as, you know, you could be whatever you want to be. You can't, you're not always going to be the best at it. You know, I'm, I'm a musician. I know I'm not going to be the best uh, musician I can be. Uh, <laughs> there's always going to be somebody better, right? But I know that I'm still a musician because I, I love the craft. I play, I, I write, I study. So if you want to be something, you can just be it. Again, just becoming this person you're supposed to be, the main theme of this movie. Um, you know, for a lot of... It's it's different for everybody. A writer, a uh, uh, a father, a mother, a, a Jedi. You know, it's all the same. And it's all about, in order to do that, you don't become overcome by hatred, anger, and fear. Or else it will forever dominate your destiny. So the three things that could ever get in the way of you becoming what you want to be in this life is hatred, anger, and fear. And that's what makes this movie so damn powerful. Honestly, it's my least favorite of the original trilogy. Not to say that I dislike it at all, but it's my least favorite. But as far as like the meaning behind it, and its overall message and themes. I gotta say, this this one is, it's up there. It, it's it's got a lot. It's got a lot of meat in it. It's got a lot of heart. Um, you know, especially could you imagine living in the time where you had to wait four years for this movie to come out after The Empire Strikes Back? Man, that would that would have been that would have been insane. And then you know, twenty years later, we get The Force Awakens. What was it, 20 years? A little over 20. But, um, yeah. That's really all I want to talk about for Return of the Jedi today, you know? Uh, you guys were great. You did such a good job listening to this podcast. I am so impressed. You should give yourself a pat on the back. But, anyway, thank you guys so much for listening. I greatly appreciate it. Please spread the word and tell everyone and all your friends about Han Talks first. It's been a pleasure talking to you today. Come back next week. We're going to talk about Chapter 4 of The Mandalorian. And then The Force Awakens review. This is what I've been waiting for. Guys, we are so freaking close to The Rise of Skywalker. Actually, I'm going to look at my um, countdown to Rise of Skywalker uh, thing real quick and let you know exactly how far away we... How many days until The Rise of Skywalker. Okay, so... For those of you listening right now on Tuesday, we are 23 days away, 11 hours, 45 minutes, and 35 seconds away until the rise of Skywalker. Get excited, you doinks. It's going to be amazing, and we're going to have a lot more great content to talk about leading up to that. So you guys have a great rest of your week. I wish you the best. And much love going out to you guys. Now, somehow, someway, somewhere, this week, may the Force be with you. Do it.